0: This is a hard chapter. Then one of the seven angels who had seven bowls came and said to me, come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names. And it had seven heads and ten horns. And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery. Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman... Drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. <laughs> the angel said to me, why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. They are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, the other has not yet come, and when he does come, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth but it belongs to the seven and it goes to destruction. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour, together with the beast. These are of one mind and hand over their power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the lamb and the lamb will conquer them. For he is Lord of lords. And king of kings and those with him are called chosen and faithful and the angel said to me the waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute, and they will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire, for God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. Yes, we should pray. Our Lord and our God, we do ask that you would give again light and life to your word, to our hearts, to our minds. You've told us, uh, we know of Christ Jesus, praying sanctify your people in the truth. Your word is the truth. Would your spirit now accomplish that sanctification even in this time? We pray for Christ's sake. Amen. Amen. Obviously, in the the midst of a pandemic, things probably feel a little bit different in culture. One of the things that has been, I think, probably the most amusing to me is, as you know, uh, most of my social media consumption is in the sports realm, uh, primarily in the soccer realm, but watching how the worldwide culture is coping with a lack of sports. I think perhaps my favorite was a tweet from a, a gentleman, obviously it was a joke, but he, he said... Um, With no sports on, he looked around, and apparently there was a young lady sitting on his couch, which apparently was his wife, and he didn't realize she seemed nice, Uh, which made me chuckle to no end. Obviously, he was joking, but the point being that once sports were turned off, his eyes were opened to the world around him. I read an article uh, just two days ago, I guess, where uh, looking at one of the uh, very most popular kind of adult sites for adult um, materials, uh, their consumption has increased by more than 6% in the last week alone. Uh, Amazing to think about a culture that uh, when sports is taken away or work is taken away or we get... uh, we would say privileged, some would say stuck in the same place with your family all of the time, uh, not able to see your friends and to go out and do things, H- how it changes how you see the world. And it's been intriguing to me to watch just how much kind of weeping and gnashing of teeth there has been when culture was removed. And what a shocking thing to, to just take away our, our entertainment industry, And to watch the world go into frenzy. I think chapter 17 actually providentially, uh, again, the beauty of Lectio Continua preaching just preaching through books of the Bible chapter by chapter. I never would have picked this chapter for this week. Um, maybe Psalm 46, uh, you know, we don't need to be afraid. Our God is a mighty fortress. Uh, not, not Revelation 17, but providentially, it lines up far, far better than I would have even prepared or guessed before digging into the text. And I think probably because the first part, verses 1 through 6, lay out for God's people to see the strong lure Of the kingdoms and cultures and economies of the kingdom of man, the world of man. The strong lure of the kingdoms, cultures and economies and the dangers that are associated with that uh, in our current land. It starts out here in the passage uh, really finishing out the seventh bowl of wrath. Okay, So uh, we've seen the same format taken three times now in the book uh, with the seven seals uh, and uh, the seven trumpets and now the seven bowls of wrath. And they all follow the same pattern, four, two, and one. Four, deal with uh, God's wrath being poured out inside the created order. Two, deal with God's wrath uh, specifically within the spiritual order. And then the last one always takes place in heaven and takes place in heaven on the totality of creation. As a result, that last one, the seventh one, always gets uh, an extended focus as it's the, the biggest and the most important and the most significant. Here we've gotten to see how it receives special focus in verses 17 through 21 of the previous chapter where uh, the angel pours out the bowl of wrath on creation. It says it's finished. All of God's wrath is, is administered and creation basically gets torn apart. We got to see uh, flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and great earthquake as there's never been seen before. Uh, Then hailstones, 100 pounds each, destroying all of humanity. Chapter 17 is is an explanation of that seventh bowl. It's a commentary on it. It's a further explanation. kind of illumination of what's taking place. One of these seven angels, doesn't matter which one, probably I suspect the seventh, uh, who had the seven bowls comes to John and says, come, look, it's time to go. I'm going to show you the judgment. You're like, okay, well, I've kind of been seeing that now for many chapters already. I've seen it in the most terrible of fashions, but now I'm going to show you the judgment of, and it takes up a new figure in the book, the great Prostitute who was seated on many waters. You're like, oh wow, this just got weird. The book of Revelation's already been weird, now it got really weird. And so, what happens here is John is whisked away, taken into the wilderness, given a spiritual vision in the heavenly places in which he gets to see this woman. And if you pay attention to verse 3, it gives great explanation as to who she is, kind of in terms of her image, and then with the parts both before and after giving explanation. He carried me away in the spirit to wilderness. I saw a woman sitting on, and this is the significant part, a scarlet beast he's red that scarlet the language there is of like blood red Uh, he is most likely a dragon and is certainly the portrait of the devil that has already been explained sitting on a scarlet beast the beast uh, was full of blasphemous names again we've already seen that connected with uh, uh, the beast uh, the the sea beast it had seven heads and ten horns, so this gruesome kind of monstrosity of a creature, again, highlighting the function of the devil. The woman, verse 4, is arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with golden jewels and pearls and holding in her hand a golden cup. And so just kind of introductory, this is the most kind of shocking portrait we've seen in the book yet. John's taken away into the middle of the desert, and if you were to kind of just wrap your mind around what he's seeing, he shows up, and there's this marvelous-looking woman. I mean, if you were to see her in any other kind of setting, if you were to see her in any other kind of location, in any other backdrop, you would think, my goodness, this woman is royalty, She's marvelous to look at. She's lovely. She is clothed with the nicest of clothing, rayed in purple and scarlet. She is filled with prosperity. She has gold and jewels and pearls, and even to the point where she's able to kind of adopt that into part of her lifestyle. She's this golden cup that she's drinking out of. And so on the surface, you would think, my goodness, we've arrived at a figure. I mean, this is somebody that you would think of an ancient Hollywood, right? Old Hollywood, of just this lovely figure of of wealth and grace and beauty and dignity and excellence, except it's not that. (laughs) It's that that's been left out in the sun and rotted just a touch. It's that apple that you didn't realize had been in the bottom of the fruit bowl a little bit too long, and so when you reach in to grab it, it kind of mushes in your hand, and you're like, hmm, Yeah, mom, can you get, you know, Mix that with the fact that she's sitting on this absolute monster and the incongruity here would have been a bit disturbing. (laughs) What's going on, God? What's going on with this? This is bizarre to see what's happening. This woman sitting on this monster, she's clothed in wealth and excellence, and yet the monster's terrible. And in fact, actually, the bits that explained both before and after uh, highlighted it tells us who she is there in verse 5. She is Babylon the Great, she's the mother of prostitutes and of all the world's abominations. <laughs> Further, what we find out at the end of four, at the end, inside her cup is what she's drinking of is not wholesome. She's not having a a glass of wine. She's not having a glass of water. Instead, she has a cup full of abominations and all of the impurities that accompany her lifestyle. The filth of how she lives. If you were to go back up into verse two, you would see further that uh, this is the woman who brings with her all of the kind of uh, the wealth and the propri- uh, uh, um, uh, prestige of kings. She brings with her all of the, the, the worship of those that dwell on the earth that uh, have worshipped the beast. She is this kind of portrait of those who have captured the hearts and minds and wills. Of the unredeemed. She is the personification of the lure of the kingdoms and the cultures and the economy of mankind. Put differently, for those that don't enjoy your high-end literature classes, if you were to try to describe uh, that love of, of, of the kingdom of man, that love of the culture of man, that love of the economy of man, if you were to try to describe it as a person, this is what she would be. Someone who looks brilliant on the outside in parts But has the incongruity of of parts of her look like she's lovely and excellent and rich and noble. But also this great whiff of the devil as she sits upon his back. And then to find out that she herself is drunk with the blood of the martyrs. She consumes the people of God. Look at verse 6. This is the kind of shocking part. I saw this woman. Drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And I I think that this is one of those uh, great realities that maybe uh, the American church has kind of a little bit fallen asleep to. You know, kind of one of those realities that maybe we've kind of stopped being quite so attentive to. The reality that the kingdom of of this earth, that the kingdom of man, uh, that even the economies of the world today, all of the love of money, the love of culture, the love of all kinds of immorality, though it may be prettied up and pasted over, is at its core one of the great lures of the devil. That's one of the great lures of the devil. In fact, that's the one who's steering this show when we get to the next section here in verse 7 in a moment, where uh, John begins to ask questions and the angel goes to explain what's taking place. The angel barely comments on her, he comments almost entirely on the beast that she's riding on. Because the angel wisely understands who's the one in charge of this? It's not her. She's not the one that is running the show. She's simply a tool of the one who is running the show. Well, not ultimately running the show, but the one who is at work. It is the devil himself. It is the devil himself and again, not to say that we as God's people need to live in a culture of fear, uh, need to live in a culture where we're afraid of every television show, where we're afraid of every uh, music, uh, you know, song, album, whatever you want to listen to these days. Not that we have to be afraid of every sort of book or any sort of cultural interaction. That's certainly not what we're called to do. But I suspect that we have maybe perhaps forgotten a little bit The the culture that we live in is one of the great tools the devil uses for the undoing of the church. The world, the flesh, and the devil. The three great enemies, as the Reformed tradition has said. And to realize that the culture that we live in fallen in love with what this woman offers she looks good ish filled with wealth would have what we would think of maybe perhaps as a life of pleasure and fame she's drunk on her pleasures and has been able to pursue that which she desires and to think about the world in which we live Again, I go back to the introduction. It's been one of the intriguing things to watch in our kind of cultural moment as uh, we're wrestling with this kind of worldwide pandemic of one watching uh, how much our current culture is just petrified by the idea of death. Absolutely petrified by the idea of death. Death. And trying to use every aspect of culture and creation that it can use to cram inside its heart to make it feel good enough, to feel like it's enough for just another moment. I mean, to think about just, again, how people are, are compensating. The one I've been watching that's been, I think perhaps most kind of comical to me is the debate that's happening in other parts of the country where they're already in kind of, you know, stay-at-home rules and the government's enforcing it and you can get arrested for going out and everything if you're not going out for kind of necessary and and essential uh, things. And are liquor stores necessary and essential entities? That's been the one that's amused me. Are liquor stores necessary and essential entities? Do they fall in the same category as hospitals and grocery stores? You know, again, I have no issue with, with, with liquor. But the issue is is how much it's being used, how much it's being used to fill the heart to hide the hurt. How much our culture is grasping at all of these aspects of creation, again, to try to stuff them into the soul to make it feel like it's enough. I suspect that if we are uh, in a cultural moment where we're going to be stuck in our homes for a a bit longer, which looks like is quite possible, I I suspect it's going to be intriguing to watch over the next probably two months to feel the tension of our culture unraveling, of those holes in the human heart that become increasingly exposed as the things that we've used to paste over them are taken away. Your sports, which distracted you, are taken away. Your job, which has distracted you, is taken away. Your friends, which have distracted you, are taken away. Perhaps even your church, which has distracted you, is perhaps in some way taken away. And to leave that kind of gaping wound of the soul exposed and to say, what are we going to fill it with? What's going to be the medicine that we're going to give to our inner man or woman? What are we going to fill our hearts with? The interesting thing is, as John is interacting with this, he, in verse 6, the end of verse 6, he sees this woman in the wilderness sitting on the devil, sitting on this beast, and is overwhelmed with the kind of power, majesty, and, and presentation of it. Verse to the end of it, where he says, And then I saw, I marveled greatly. That word there is, he's dazzled. He's even shocked at how lovely it is. And again, I don't feel badly, uh, I, I'm not the right word, I, I don't judge Christians that have fallen prey to culture in this way. The devil is very good at what he does, he's very smart to the point where we begin to drink of that cultural uh, cup without realizing what we're consuming. Without realizing how much we've begun to rest in entertaining ourselves to death. John even in some sense falls prey to it. He's he's mystified, he's dazzled, he's marveling at who this woman is and the devil that she rests upon, and he, he's just shocked. The angel in seven says to him, What are you what are you doing? What are you doing? Wake up. Come to, get your eyes open. I'm going to explain to you what you're seeing. Here's what you're seeing the beast with the seven heads, the ten horns that carries her. This beast that you saw was and is not, and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go into destruction. And this paragraph is where it gets un- just bizarre. I could spend the next hour and a half trying to work through all of the various permutations of what everything could be. I'm not going to do that. Instead, highlight the key kind of essential point that these verses highlight. This woman, the kingdoms of man, the the cultures of man, the economies of man, all of those pleasures and prides that we trust in, that we use to paste over the hole in our heart, And the devil and all of his efforts and all of his minions and all of his uh, evil ministrations seeking to destroy the people of God, uh, verses 7 through 14 highlight they will pass away. They'll pass away. They're not going to last, they're not going to be around. They're not eternal in that regard. You see, verse 8 hints at this and highlights as this even the way that it begins the conversation about the devil, this beast that she's riding upon, in that it takes the triune reference to God in his eternal state and modifies it just enough to note, oh yeah, by the way, this is a fraud. Our God, the one that we worship, he is the God who was and is and is to come. He is the eternal God, the undying God. He is our God. This beast, however, note here in verse 8, he is the one who was and is not and is about to be raised from the bottomless pit for destruction. it's a mockery, a parody of who God is, but instead, what is it highlighting? Well, this one is attempting to replicate who God is. He is failing at it, and the end will be destruction. Those who belong to his kingdom, the dwellers on earth who have not been a part of the book of life, guess what? Their end will be destruction. The woman, in all of her might and majesty. Again, I'm, I'm going to suggest that it, there's a reason why why John is dazzled. If I were to run into like a you know the perfect portrait of a a Hollywood movie star in all of her beauty and all of her dress and all of her wealth, riding on the back of a massive like Hydra or dragon under her control, seemingly, uh, that would be pretty overwhelming. I mean that would that would be genuinely jaw dropping. Like I would be impressed like, that's, that's pretty amazing. I mean, I'm just watching guys like on you know, TV control elephants. I marvel at that. I'm like, well, that's pretty impressive. That's a big critter, much less this massive kind of seven-headed dragon. What's highlighted, though, in verse uh, 9 and following is that all of the kind of symbolic imagery of what's taking place behind her and taking place in the beast, the fullness of this kingdom of mankind, the kingdom of the devil, all of it in its totality is just going to disappear representing these heads and mountains and kings and all, the, all of them will rise and all of them will fall. Because of verse 11, the beast is the beast that was and is not and is coming to be destroyed. And verses 12 and 13 kind of highlight that as they work through the mechanics of the prophecy, but it's again getting at what's going to happen. The k- kingdoms of mankind will rise and fall. They're not worthy to be trusted in. The economies of man will rise and fall. They're not worthy to be trusted in. The cultures of man will rise and fall. They're not worthy to be trusted in. And you would say, well, Michael, this is low-hanging fruit. This is easy pickings if you've been watching the news this week. You mean to tell me that it's not worth trusting in an economy today? A month ago, would we have ever guessed our economy would be where it is right now? Was it the Dow is lower than when President Trump took office for the first time? You mean even the most stable, the most excellent, the strongest, the best of human economies, that's not worth trusting in? You mean the American culture, which I think is probably perhaps the best culture in the world, that which is at least not overtly opposed to Christianity all of the time. You mean that that's not worth trusting in, that's not worth finding my meaning and my measure in? And, well, again, six weeks ago, would you have ever guessed that kind of every major sporting league in the Western Hemisphere would be called off? All my soccer channels were playing games from 25 years ago because it's long enough that we've probably forgotten what they looked like. What's going on? watch like professional rock, paper, scissors on television now. I saw that. Come on, man. Come on. See, that's actually the benefit of a thing like the coronavirus like this and this worldwide pandemic is that it shows how fragile life is. And I don't mean that fragile in the individual sense. Wesley just joined the church. Wesley could get it. Wesley, I don't mean that sense. I mean it in the corporate sense. That how little it takes to have all of the things that we find our meaning in to just be ripped away. To have all of the things that we find our pleasure in ripped away. This has been, I think, probably more obvious to me than many in the sense of my great love sporting-wise is the Liverpool Soccer Club, football club, and specifically what's happening now is they're about to, they were about to win the league for the first time in 30 years. It's the equivalent of when the Boston Red Sox here went to the World Series and won the World Series, and it'd be like right before they closed out the final game, Liverpool needs to win two games to win the league, and the league's been suspended. Now they're talking about voiding the whole season. And my, all of my friends and you know, social networks and everything are melting down. <laughs> 30 years of waiting and in an entire season of excitement. Liverpool has lost one game in the league this season. Uh, an entire year of excitement, 30 years of waiting. And now one simple virus might take it all away. How little it takes to expose the emptiness in our hearts. How little it takes to showcase our need. How little it takes to to pull away our false gods, our idols, our self-medications. How little it takes to show our frailty. Verses 15 through 18 obviously uh, present the solution. The angel said to me, okay, in light of all that you've seen, this amazing woman, the beast, all of this kind of prophecy, highlighting that they're all going to pass away. The only thing that remains is the lamb. The waters that you saw are the prostitutes. seed, the peoples, the multitudes, the nations and languages. It's the world. This is what her arena is. She owns the world. And oh yeah, by the way, our God is so mighty and they are so evil, they cannot even present a united front on that very hatred. Instead, what's going to happen is this kingdom of man will crumble in on itself because it doesn't have a uniting power like the Lord Christ that works and sends his spirit to change us from the inside out. Instead, all of these cultures, the kingdom of man, the, the economies of man, the cultures of man, all of these things will eventually crumble from the inside out. Because they will turn on themselves. I like to think of it as the consequence of the first section where it described her. She's getting drunk with her cup of the abominations, the consequences of her lifestyle. So that the more she consumes her lifestyle, the more that she consumes the cultures and the economies, the kingdoms of man, the more it has that poisoning effect in her until it implodes from the inside out. You can say that, I mean, it's been proven over and over and over again in history. One of the great illustrations, the one that John was probably most likely thinking of when this was being talked about, Rome, uh, just down the street. You know, we now have kind of all the high-end historical analyses of what happens in Rome and everything, and uh, the biggest and the best, the like 22 volume or whatever it is, uh, the, the downfall of the Roman Republic. It's interesting. He puts one primary thing as the downfall eventually unravels the entire Roman Republic. Marriage broke. And interestingly, when marriage broke child rearing broke and when child rearing broke the family broke and when the family broke the culture broke and when the culture broke the the entire, entire empire imploded from the inside out his argument is that Rome eventually ate itself right like a Uh, a snake that gets its own tail and then just continues to eat until it kills itself. This is what happens with Rome. It it ate itself from the inside out. Here, that's what's being described here, is that uh, these ones, these kingdoms, verse 16, that are happening here, they're going to hate both the thing that they love and hate at the same time because it's going to destroy them. Instead, what's going to happen is they're going to wage war on her, she's going to wage war on them, it will all implode. And why? Because God is the one, verse 17, who is in charge of all of it. God has placed it into their hearts, even into the hearts of pagans to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. He he is so mighty and so powerful and so sovereign. He is in charge of the devil. He's in charge of all the kingdoms, cultures, economies of man. He's in charge of the coronavirus. He's in charge of you. He's in charge of me. He is in charge of everything. So much so that we need not be afraid of Babylon. Now, again, we laugh at that, and why would I be afraid of Babylon? Babylon's gone; it doesn't really exist in the way that we know it now. It's certainly not a power that I need to be afraid of. Well, yeah, that's kind of the point. <laughs> For the vast majority of Israel's history, they should have been terrified of Babylon. She was terrifying. Now, at this point in history, this is certainly being referenced as Rome. Babylon is a hint at Rome, and uh, I guess actually for the first time in millennia, we should be afraid of Rome again, I guess, with just all that they have going on there right now. But uh, the point being is that all of these, these nations, these entities, these cultures, they all pass away. Because only the lamb is great enough and mighty enough and powerful enough to win over them. And I would end with this simple application for all of us. This craziness that we're watching happen in the world right now. The fact that our Sunday morning looks like it did 11 years ago, not two weeks ago. The fact that there's no sports on television, the the fact that they're not filming new movies, they're not uh, making new television shows, the fact that everything is increasingly moving further and further towards a shutdown, is one of the great gifts that God is giving us currently to help us understand our spiritual condition. I mean, the same way that the CDC has been publishing everything you can imagine to check for fevers, to check for a cough, to check for any sort of lung tightness and all that mess. God is instead giving us here, even in this time, an opportunity to say, guess what? You need to be watching out not for a fever and a cough and lung tightness. You need to be watching out for the love of money. You need to be watching out for how you try to use this earthly culture to make you feel better. The ways that you're using your television or your internet to take away the pain of life. You need to be watching out for the ways in which you, though being a child of God, are are using the world's methods to make yourself feel better. If you don't know what I mean, just wait. At some point in the next two days, it likely will happen for many of us. As the boredom begins to set in, or as the stir craziness begins to set in, or as we get overwhelmed with just kind of the frantic changes of how life operates, look at what mechanisms we're using to make ourselves feel better. Pay attention to that. Think about when you, again, start paying attention to your own heart. Be doctor to your own soul. Look at what you go to make yourself feel good again. Are you going to food? Are you going to internet? Are you going to your family? Are you going to what are you going to to make yourself feel better? Because again, the point that, that is being put out here in verse 13 14 <laughs> This is all about the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is about the Lamb. And highlighting uh, that the lamb wins and he's the solution to our problems and the holes in our heart and the brokenness in our soul. May it be that God would even use something so complicated and difficult as the world that we're currently living in to help give us medicine to see where we are self-medicating with evil things even now. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We honor you. We ask that your spirit would be so kind as to show us where we love the world instead of loving you. Help us, we pray, for Christ's sake. Amen.